All right, let's get going. I know everybody at uh, party conferences has an evening packed with ever more interesting uh, events to go to, so I think we should try and start on time. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome you here on behalf of the LSE. I'm Tony Travers uh, from uh, the Government Department and LSE London, but we're really here at the behest of the newly created Institute of Public Affairs, a new institute within the school designed to extend the school's engagement and its reach um, beyond the excellent academic research that is done at the LSE. Many of you will doubtless know the school, but also to involve others who have an interest in the kind of work that is done within the school and sort of bring together the work of practitioners and the LSE and then engage with the wider world. And for those of you arriving late, I promise you chairs are on their way. Yes, and they're arriving. So, um, good. Now, um, so that's why we're here, and a welcome from me. I'll introduce our two speakers in a moment. But I want to do just to begin, really, by talking about um, housing. We're here to talk about housing, the crisis that divides. And, of course, the word crisis overused in public policy but uh, in the case of housing, probably not overused, uh, particularly in Britain at the moment. Um, successive governments bring their own solutions to this issue as to others. I'm just going to remind myself to switch off my mobile phone, which it has. Sorry about that. Um, successive governments bring their approaches to this issue. And, of course, everybody here will know that there are a number of uh, attributes of the way local and national government work and policy approaches that affect the delivery of housing and indeed the price of housing and access to housing. So in no particular order, the planning system, uh, our, the British approach, particularly the English approach to green land and green belts, very political, um, the construction industry, whether the construction industry is too concentrated or whether there need to be more players in it, and a general, uh, a large number of people with solutions to, an, to the housing crisis, but for those of us like me who are on the periphery of it but interested in it, never quite sure, other than Christine, who to believe, as I believe my colleagues. Um, so I think that it's a complex issue. And, of course, made the more so by the fact that the United Kingdom population is rising very, very quickly by the standards of an old country, particularly in the southern part of the country. From my own personal research interests over a number of years, I impinge on this, particularly because of the uh, antique nature of Britain's property tax system. Uh, council tax, not revalued now since 1993, based on values in 1991, so all the relativities are out of place. Um, st uh, stamp duty now being used as a sort of proxy, and not a very uh, elegant proxy for a a new pro or proper property tax, and discussions here and indeed uh, within the Liberal Democrats of a mansion tax. So all sorts of discussions about possible ways to change or improve taxation as part of our wider approach to housing. But as I say, I think we need to understand what the problem and problems are within uh, this housing shortage, housing crisis, and what the barriers are to delivering solutions. Um, what are the routes to delivering more homes? 
um, what are the powers that need to be given to local authorities or to central government or to city regions, to be topical, and um, in particular, how all of this impacts on the way we live, how people live in different kinds of housing in different places within towns and cities and indeed the countryside. All I'd say beyond that is we have three speakers, uh, the third of whom, Emma Reynolds MP, who's the Shadow Housing Minister, is due to arrive. Uh, she was always going to arrive from another event uh, at about 6.20, uh, 6.25. So she will turn up soon. And I'm going to now hand over to the first of our speakers, uh, who is David Orr, Chief Executive of the National Housing Federation. So we'll hear from David, then from Christine, who is Professor of Housing Economics at the LSE, and then from Emma and then we'll open it up for a debate. David. Thank you very much, Tony. <coughs> I, I'm going to stand up because I speak better standing up. What a tiny room. <laughs> Major crisis. Honestly, this is, are you trying to create the, the housing problem in this room? This is, it's a metaphor. It's, it's, it's a, a metaphor. metaphor. It's a metaphor. Visualising. So, visualising. It is the Institute for Public Affairs' visualising of data. Among the consequences of this tiny room is that the LSE's banner cannot be shown, nor indeed can the Homes for Britain banner, which is why one of my colleagues has put this on every seat. You see, it's always best to have a second string to your bow. Um, Homes for Britain is an alliance of 80 different organisations, um, almost everyone you've ever heard of in the housing landscape, all saying the same thing, that we need our politicians to commit to ending the housing crisis in a generation. Uh, and this is a really important message because at the centre of it, it says it took us a long time to get into this mess. We know and understand it will take us a long time to get out of it. And the, one of the ways that we will assuredly, certainly not get out of it is by having one government coming along for five years with a whole bunch of initiatives, not policies, just initiatives, designed to give the impression of doing something, and then a change of government and another one coming along with a whole bunch of initiatives designed to give the impression of doing something. That, sadly, has been the way of the housing debate for far too long and is part of the reason that we are in the mess that we are now in. So we are asking all of our politicians to commit to ending the housing crisis within a generation and if they are elected to office within one year of taking office to have a detailed long-term plan for delivering that commitment. Of course, we and others will help them. On day one of the uh, new government, we will be there saying, if you want a detailed long-term plan on how to do it, here's one we've prepared for you. And then it'll be so good that they'll just pick it up and say, thank you, David, that's what we'll do, obviously. Um, but joking aside, and none of that part is really a joke, we are in the midst of a housing crisis, and my anxiety is that if we do not start doing something properly thoughtful and strategic very soon, then the nature of this housing crisis will become crippling. It will become crippling not just socially, but it will be crippling economically. So let me just give you a few uh, indicators. Uh, apologies to those of you who've heard some of these facts and figures from me before, but hey, they are the facts. So if you look at 
household incomes, not average individual earnings, but if you look at household incomes, 25% of households in this country have a total household income of £18,000 a year or less. 25%. Half of all households have an income of £32,000 a year or less. If you want to be a first-time buyer in this market, you are likely to require an income of at least £36,000 a year. £4,000 more than half of all households in the country have. We have created a housing market where owner-occupation is a game for the wealthy, not for everyone. That's outrageous. Not least because... Actually, we inherited from our parents, people of my age inherited from our parents, a housing market that broadly worked. So at today's prices, today's prices, that £36,000 that you now need if you're a first-time buyer, when I was buying my first house, you could do it with an income at today's prices of £20,000. You needed a deposit at today's prices of £3,000. Today, you need a deposit of £30,000. And in this market, if you can't manage to access owner-occupation, you're likely, if if you're in work at all, you're likely to be in the private rented sector where you're paying more than 40% of your income on rent. And in many parts of the market, a good deal more than that. And for the privilege of doing all of this, our nation has reached such a point of housing crisis that we're paying £24 billion a year in housing benefit. That is not a strategy, that's a mess. That is just a disaster that so much money is going on doing something which is not productive. Because most of that money, of course it pays for people to have a home, but most of it is not going into new supply, most of it's going to buy to let landlords who are not then creating new supply. Now, this isn't a criticism of buy-to-let landlords. It's a criticism of a 25-year-long failure to think strategically about housing and housing policy. And here's the rub. I believe that from the end of the Second World War until the late 1970s, governments had housing policies. From then till now, we've had tenure policies. And we've angst and worried about owner occupation or renting or whether one's better or morally superior to the other and all the stuff about owner occupation becoming about the creation of asset wealth none of that is wrong but all of it misses the point and the point is that we have a growing population we've consistently had a growing population in our country and really since the time of the first baby boomers we've not been investing enough in building new homes and the chickens have come home to roost So, when I first bought my house, because my parents were of a generation that thought that the world should be better in the future than it was for them, they'd prepared for that as a society by considering housing a key social service. Look at the 1951 Conservative Party manifesto. The most important social service is housing. That's what that manifesto said. Can you imagine... Any of our parties saying that now, including Labour? I don't think so, because that's not the terminology we think now of housing as a private good. But for the baby boomers of my generation, our parents were building 300,000 homes a year or more. 
we've taken that legacy and turned it into a position now, today, where owner occupation is a sport for wealthy people with wealthy parents, where people cannot afford the private renting, where we don't have enough social rented homes, where we are building 120,000 homes a year. And do you know what? We've just had the biggest baby boom since the baby boom generation that I'm part of. So our parents were building 300,000 homes a year for our baby boom generation. We've been building 120,000 homes a year and we're starting from the point of crisis. I don't wish to be hyperbolic about this, but honestly, if we don't start to do something about that now, where are these children going to live? We will not have the homes that they need. And that will not just be disastrous for them and for their families and for what you might describe as social resilience and our view of ourselves as a nation. It will be economically disastrous. Everyone from London Chambers of Commerce to Mark Carney to the CBI, economists, people thinking about the economic health of the nation, are saying... What's the single thing that is going to be the biggest break on our ability to grow the economy? That we will not be able to house the people who we need to grow that economy. That's the position that we are in now. And sadly, companies in London or Cambridge or the Thames Valley Corridor or the east of England or the other places where there is economic growth going on, if they cannot find affordable housing for the people that they need to employ to see those businesses grow, that might mean that some jobs will relocate to Middlesbrough or Liverpool, but more probably it will mean that jobs will relocate to Frankfurt or America or Australia. This is not a good basis for building an economically successful, economically resilient future. So we think with all of these different organisations that there are, of course, a huge number of measures that we need to put in place. But we need, first of all, to create the political context that makes people think they have to put the measures in place to begin with. And to do that, we have to get people to understand the shape, the scale, the nature of the future crisis now and in the future. And, you know, a whole lot of things that we've talked about, some of the things that were in Tony's introduction, are, of course, things that we have to consider and we have to pay attention to. But we have talked ourselves into believing that this is difficult. And it's not. It's actually pretty easy. We know how to build homes. We have absolutely no shortage of land. And there's a wall of money out there waiting to be invested in residential accommodation. All we need to do is create the political environment that makes it happen. You know as well as I do that when the decision is made for HS2 to go ahead, nothing will get in its way. We need the same kind of single-minded political fixation on ensuring that infrastructure in the form of housing is central to the nation's future. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, passion and statistics and a very clear presentation of what the issues really are. And I'll turn to my colleague, Christy, Professor Christine Whitehead, who um, has a long uh, research record at the LSE. Uh, I was at an event the other day where she just said, and it was casually meant, 
Ah, yes. I was, when I was researching housing in Camden in the 60s, in the 60s, Christy. <laughs> Thank you. I was about to start by saying I was older than David and can remember further back. And if he thinks the crisis didn't start before 79, he's wrong. Uh, I was part of the Housing Finance and Housing Policy Review in 74 set up to try to make sense of housing. We had inflation, which meant that all the subsidy systems didn't work. Housing was being destroyed by lack of management, lack of management, etc. And what happened with our housing policy review is what we don't want to happen this time round. We were set up by the Labour government. We started the day the Labour government came in. We were due to finish within a year. We finished in four years, and not a single thing was directly affected. So I think there is a historical lesson, but we think there's a crisis, we know there's a crisis, but we're not acting as if there's a crisis, and just having (coughs) discussions about it is not going to be the answer. Uh, In particular, building new homes, large amounts of new homes, three or four times what we're building at the present time, will still not make any difference to house prices in the short run. But it will make an awful lot of difference to people's attitudes because at the moment they think there's building everywhere because we're always building where people can see that building. We're building half the amount we normally are. But you talk to anybody in the street and they think we're building everywhere we care about. It's wrong. It's not true. But we've got to make that story fit somehow. So building more won't do anything in the short run. David's quite right. We need a 20-year process. It will do, start to impact on expectations if we can get it going for four, five, six years, preferably through two types of government. Um, but we've also got a short-term issue, which is that assume for a moment, which we hope is going to be the case, that the economy improves over the next five years. We have a million households who have not formed because of the recession. Unless we change something, they're all going to want to fall. They're going to have more capacity to pay, and what's going to happen is that house prices are going to rise. They cannot be stopped from rising unless we do something massive, politically unacceptable, about taking away demand from existing owner-occupiers, from David, from me, from other people who have got very good homes uh, and do not release them. We cannot do it just by building. So we've got major problems in that context. But one thing is quite clear, we must build. It's also clear that when we stop building, which was not, by the way, a Conservative uh, Party thing, it started in the 70s, local authorities started to see that they couldn't necessarily make it work quite as easily, and uh, output levels started to fall way before 1979. Uh, So we do need to get much more building done and some of that building is going to have to be on the green belt. I have been trying, one of the many things that I have not won, I've been trying for 25 years to change the name of the green belt. A a proportion of the green belt is scrubland, it is close to transport, it is suitable for development. Not necessarily a very large proportion. We don't need a lot of it out there. But 
It is not green. And, but most people think that if one hectare of land is taken, then the whole of the green belt, which is larger than the whole of the urban area, will disappear. We haven't got the capacity to build that amount in 100 years. Never worry. So we must have a rational system for the green belt, in particular in the context of, for instance, HS2. HS2 is going to run from green belt to green belt push up the prices. <laughs> There's no other way it can work. Uh, so there is a very, very big issue in that context. The second is that we've, we have moved backwards and forwards between supply-side subsidies and demand-side subsidies. It often depends upon whether they're in the same department or in different departments. When housing was paying for housing benefit, then you had a much more rational system but, of course, you didn't necessarily have a rational system of overall welfare. Now housing benefit is with welfare, and housing uh, delivery and supply is with the Department of Communities. Um, but the issue here is very much that housing benefit is a stand at the moment, and a universal credit, as it will stand, maybe, um, is fundamentally non-sustainable. <coughs> We have a policy which cannot stay in place in the way that it is at the present time. And I will tell a story which I tell far, far too often. In 1990, whenever it was, whenever the Labour got, government got in... 97. I, I was going to say six <laughs> and I knew it wasn't. Uh, I went for the first time to 10 Downing Street. I met with a number of colleagues, uh, a civil servant very high quality civil servant and we talked about changing housing benefit this was in the September she said it's too late far too late you can't do it in this government so we have to know what we're doing before we get there we have to persuade the, the, the government before the time and, and to have support mechanisms in place so we know some of the ways in which it can happen. The civil servants can do a lot of it, but there is no time to say, after the election, we shall do this. The private rented sector has doubled in size since 2001. More than doubled in size. It's not suited uh, for many of the people who are in it. Uh, the regulatory frameworks and the structures are out of date. They're not meant for this sort of proportion of the housing stock. And 40% of tenants in uh, the private rented sector are eligible for housing benefit 25% claiming and the structure of housing benefit makes absolutely no sense tenant on partial housing benefit doesn't care where the rent is as long as it's not above the local housing allowance so all these housing associations who try to keep rents down all they're doing is helping DWP uh, that is mad so we do have to direct at two things. One, getting the new build up, and secondly, getting the benefit regime into some form of logical position. Because at the moment, people earn a bit more, they lose nearly all of it because of the taper. The rents can go up and they don't care. And the cost to government is an absolute fortune. So there are things we need to put right, there are things we need to really think massively coherently about before the election. And I think uh, the final point is, Tony's uh, council tax just 
has to be reviewed and revised and there just have to be some extra levels of housing of council tax which makes a much much more coherent and much easier to collect method of achieving some form of equity on the other hand it is politically undifficult thank you very good um an enormous amount of agreement there, particularly about the. Um, uh, uh, in, I'm trying not to use the word insanity. The oddness of the benefit system in the way it. Go for insanity. All right, in the way it interacts with housing. Right, and our third speaker this evening is Emma Reynolds, who is the MP for Wolverhampton Northwest. East. And East, sorry, and I'd written, I'd, sorry, I'd written it down. Oh dear, northeast, uh, Wolverhampton, northeast, and crucially, shadow housing minister Emma. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm sorry I was late. I was at another housing fringe, and this one is incredibly well attended. So much so that the people haven't even got seats. Um, it's a great pleasure to be on the same platform again as David Orr. We've shared a platform earlier today. Um, we'll hope not to totally repeat the speeches we made at lunchtime in case some of you uh, came to that session. Um, but it's a particular pleasure to speak at this London School of Economics um, fringe. And thanks to you, Tony. But a particular pleasure to, to share a platform with Professor Christine Whitehead. And um, I think there's... Um, a lot of wisdom that we just heard. What I'm really worried about is your introduction, though, Christine, that, you, that this predates the late 70s, you know, this problem of trying to sort out why we have a housing market where demand is high, but supply is not meeting that demand. Mm. It's clearly a dysfunctional market, and there's no sort of silver bullet as a politician that I could kind of propose, no one single solution that I could bring forward that will tackle that dysfunctionality. So it falls to me to say, you know, as in the answer to a, every good essay question, well, it's very complicated. Um, but I want to explore some of the things that we are thinking about in terms of solutions. But let me just set out what I think the problems are. And given that it's the LSE, I want to talk about London and the rest of the country. We're not even building half the number of homes that we need to keep up with demand. And in London, given I'm in an LSE debate, and I see Nikki Gavran and others in this room, um, somebody from the Evening Standard, we, um, <laughs> we're only building around a third. So it's even more of an acute problem in London, as I'm sure uh, many of you know. So... Um, we know that around one in four young adults under the age of 34 are living at home. And in the year that I've been doing this job, I have been struck by the number of parents that come up to me and say that they're really worried that their kids won't be able to afford that basic uh, thing of owning their own home in the same way that they did. And some of them are craving the empty nest as well. Some of you might be sitting in the audience. Um, if current trends were to continue in terms of house building, we would have a two million home shortage in England, which would essentially be five cities the size of Birmingham. And the average deposit would be £72,000. And that's average across England. 
So guess what? In London, it's going to be much, much higher. And what's interesting about housing is it's not just a good in and of itself. It's absolutely fundamental for us in terms of being the Labour Party, Social Democrats, in terms of the other objectives that we want to meet, whether it's education, whether it's in the health service. And frankly, if we cannot get housing right, there's a real risk that we will fail in our other objectives. objectives. I'll give you one specific example. There's a black country academic who reckons that one of the key uh, determinants of whether a young child becomes, I hate this phrase by the way, a neat, not in education, employment or training, in the future, is whether they've been shifted around from one area to the other. And guess what? People who are in the private rented sector are more likely, children, the two million children living in that private rented sector are more likely to be shifted around. So their life chances, their educational attainment is put under risk because of the insecurity in the private rented sector. And I do want to say something a little bit about that in response to Christine at the end of my speech. Now, being the LSC and those thoughtful people that you are, you did kind of set us an essay question that is different to the other fringes that I've spoken at. You asked the question, does the housing crisis divide? And I'm going to give you two answers. And the first is, I do think that housing is one of the biggest intergenerational issues that we face for the reasons that I've set out. But I think that to present it as an insider-outsider problem neglects the fact that the insiders are often related to the outsiders. And certainly in those high-demand areas of, of the country, and it's not just London, I'm thinking Oxford, Manchester, some of the big cities where demand is high, there is a real concern from parents. And so I know that many of the housing debates that we have are around planning and around the, the idea that everybody knows that we need more housing, that we're in a housing crisis, they just don't want the houses anywhere near them. I sense that is beginning to shift, actually. So does the housing crisis divide? Yes, in that there are haves and have-nots, and there are insiders and outsiders, but perhaps less than we think it does in that, as I say, parents and grandparents are really worried about where their kids are going to live. The other way that you could say that it divides is between those who live in social housing or, or who are owner-occupiers and those who are in the private rented sector. And why do I say that it's the first two categories against the third? Because frankly, if you're living in the private rented sector you're more likely to be paying a higher percentage of your income, on average around 40% of your income. You're more likely to be living in, frankly, a shoddy home because a third of those homes in the private rented sector are deemed to not even meet a basic standard. And you're more likely to face the huge insecurity that comes with one of the most short-term private rented sectors in Europe. And this is particularly the case in some of our big cities, and particularly the case in London, where the numbers have just mushroomed in um, years gone by. We, there are now 9 million people renting in the private rented sector, and they're no longer the sort of stereotypical kind of students or the people who want to move around the country in their 20s because they're not sure where they're going to settle. People are settling 
not necessarily out of choice, but because either they can't get a council or a housing association home or they can't get on the housing ladder, they are settling in the private rented sector. But as Christine mentioned, it's not particularly suitable because the standard contract in the private rented sector is six months or a year, and that's what we want to change when we get into government. So let me just set out, um, in terms of the private rented sector, our reforms. Firstly, we want longer-term tenancies. And you don't have to go to Venezuela to find these. Actually, you can look across to Ireland, where they introduced four-year tenancies ten years ago. We're suggesting three-year tenancies. There would be a ceiling on those rent increases during the time of that tenancy. Now, again, this isn't 1970s rent control, as some would have you believe, but it's actually a a moderation on some of the excessive increases that we see in some of our big cities um, year after year. And we would consult on that ceiling, and it could be average market rents, which is in Ireland, or it could be a measure of inflation, which is, which is what some of the European countries use. And we want to also ban letting agent fees on tenants because, frankly, they're getting out of control and they're already paid for, usually, there's lots of double charging uh, on landlords and tenants for exactly the same thing. So... I'm really passionate about the private rented sector. The reason we've got such a problem with the private rented sector is because we're simply not building enough homes. And I know that um, in his usual passionate manner, David Orr has set this out. Um, Let me just take a couple of examples of the sorts of reforms that we're looking at. One of the big, big problems with the dysfunctional housing market is land. Land has become incredibly speculative. And in fact, properties in London have become an international speculative commodity. And that is a problem. Um, land is not in short supply. We've not, you'd think it looking at my Twitter account. People think I'm going to concrete over the green and pleasant land that we live in. We haven't even built on 10% of our land in England. And I'm told that in Surrey, there are more golf courses dedicated to land than housing. (laughs) So it's not like we haven't got any land. It's that there is an artificial kind of scarcity of land coming forward for development. And that is something that we have to change. Now, there's two sides of this equation, I think. Firstly, that there is an obligation on a local authority to come up with that local plan and to do so in a rigorous, realistic and objective manner. And we've said that we won't change, we won't throw all the pieces up in the air of the national policy uh, planning framework, but we will make some, some changes. And one of the changes would be a common methodology for assessing need. So the local authority has a responsibility to make sure that land is available. And we, this weekend, launched our idea about new homes corporations, which is part of the wider package of Lions reforms, which will be coming out in the next few weeks in the autumn. Um, New homes corporations would enable local authorities who come together to take a much more proactive approach to land assembly, which is what we see in other countries. (coughs) So instead of just identifying the land and waiting waiting for the developers to come forward, identifying the land and um, commissioning out who is going to build on that (coughs) land Uh, in much the same way that we saw the Olympics being delivered on budget, on time. And as David has said, actually what we need is political leadership, not only from central government, but from local government too. But at the same time, developers have to take their responsibilities, which is why we've been very clear 
that sitting on land with planning permission simply isn't acceptable. And that's why we would strengthen the hand of local authorities um, in their negotiations uh, with developers to either, uh, in the first instance, uh, levy a fee when this land is being set on, and as a last resort, to compulsory purchase that land if the developer refuses to uh, build on it. Um, the second uh, element of the reforms we're looking at, and there are many, and I take questions on this, but yeah. is that one of the problems we've seen, and Christine knows this better than I do, um, that every recession that we've had, house building does not recover to pre pre-recession levels. Um, and that's been going on for decades now. Um, and one of the problems related to that is that in order to get land, because it's artificial in, in supply and because it's problematic, um, the big house builders have consolidated and consolidated and consolidated, and they've got bigger and they've become more dominant. Whereas actually what we need is we need a much wider range of players in the market, small builders and others, building those homes. And that's why Chris Leslie and I, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, uh, in July launched Help to Build, which is about underwriting loans to small builders to get them access to finance that they need because they're telling us that the banks are not playing ball and view them as far too risky. So we need to unlock the potential of those small builders. And in fact, the last time we built 200,000 homes a year in the late 1980s, small builders were building around two-thirds of new homes. Now they're not even building a third. So there's lots to do. There's no silver bullet. Um, we've got to drive up standards in the private rented sector. We've got to avoid the divisions that are implied in your essay question. And we've got to make sure that we tackle some very fundamental issues with the land market, but also the nature of the house building industry. Thank you. Thank you. Emma, thank you. I mean, it's a test, if I can say this, of, of what a complex and difficult issue housing and housing supply is that, as it were, opposition spokespeople at their own party conference in opposition uh, can find that there's sort of this much pressure on them because it is such a complex issue. So um, I'd like to thank Emma for um, dealing with that. Um, just to summarise, because it is seven o'clock and although the LSE is notorious for having clocks that don't show the same time. It is actually past <laughs> seven o'clock. Uh, first, I think we've sort of bumped up several times against the rationality or otherwise of the housing benefit arrangements uh, and the way in which the very, very large slug of public money, and I think this is across all parties, actually, the very large slug of, slug of public money that's used to subsidise via housing benefits and subsidies for rents, whether that's a sen sensible use of the money in the long term. I think that is a sense that different parties may have a different approach to how they would uh, put an end to that, but there is some agreement growing about that. I think we've bumped into the question of, in effect, good or bad borrowing. I mean, whether borrowing to fund housing benefit is somehow different from borrowing to build housing is an issue which you would have thought over time uh, the wise brains that run government uh, <coughs> would be able to begin to tackle. 
clearly a, a battle lies ahead uh, about the green, about green land and the use of the green belt. It's always a contentious issue, but in the end, it, and it's not only a southeast issue. There are green land and green belts everywhere. Uh, that's not going to go away. And then, last but not least, there is the question of local taxation. And, and I have to say. I, I mean, I, I absolutely get what Emma's saying here. I mean, the thing about local taxation is it's not that there aren't better ways of doing it. Almost any way is better than the way we do it. It's moving from where we are to that. Yes. That's the thing that spooks politicians of all parties because they remember the poll tax. <laughs> and you can think of much better taxes than the poll tax lots of better taxes. But getting from any tax to any other tax means lots of losers. And we know, you know, winners... Yeah, sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, the winners, the winners don't react and the losers do. Anyway, enough. I'd like to thank Emma, Christine, David, all our speakers tonight, all of you for turning up. Uh, and I'd like to say that the IPA folk who are here... Connor, Paul, Perna, somewhere, somewhere, are still around if you want to talk to them about what the IPA is up to and have a drink at the back. Uh, we'll all be hovering around for some time to come. There's wine at the back. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this conference. <laughs>